Hi there, my name is Muhammad, and I'm the host of the Reconfigured Podcast, a show that explores the intersection of technology, culture, and society. We bring professionals to talk about their extended experience or discuss about a specific topic that might interest the audience. All of our episodes are available for free with no cost to the general public. Just a quick reminder that we are always on the lookout for interesting guests who can share their unique perspective on the topics we cover, or you can pitch in in a new topic to discuss on the pod. Just reach out to us on social media or apply to our available opportunities posted on Polywork. So welcome to the show. Today I'm with Fadi. Fadi, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. Thank you, Mohammed, for having me on the show. Uh, I'm Fadi Boulos. I'm the founder of Supportful, a software engineering staff augmentation company. We work with tech companies, mostly startups, to help them grow their engineering teams with remote engineers from Lebanon. On a personal level, I'm a happy husband and father of four children, and I'm based out of Lebanon. Fadi, could you take us through your journey from academia to the helm of Supportful? What were the pivotal moments or decisions that led you from being a PhD candidate to an entrepreneur? How did your academic background prepare you for the challenges of starting and running a tech company? Um, okay. Regarding the academic uh, preparation, um, I, I won't start on this because uh, I have a complete uh, uh, you know, vision of uh, overhauling the education system. Uh, I don't believe anymore in the education system as it is. Uh, whether at the school level or at the university level. But uh, uh, going back to my career, which is a bit atypical, um, I actually was a computer engineering student at the Lebanese University, and then there was a chance to go to France and pursue a master's degree. And um, as many Lebanese do, I uh, jumped on the opportunity and... Uh, so did the, my master's there, and the master's was quite oriented into research. So the normal next step was uh, going uh, and doing a PhD. So uh, that's what I did, and uh, it was a great experience, but it wasn't uh, for me. You know, I earned the PhD, and uh, I enjoyed the three years of research, but uh, for my own fulfillment, I had to do something else, something that uh, was more challenging, that were more, uh, that was more uh, business oriented, and uh, that were, that involved a lot of uh, networking and communicating with people. So um, I moved uh, slightly from the uh, very uh, technical side of things to the more business side of things, and uh, eventually uh, was in my last position employed as a business director in a digital agency. And then there was the crisis in Lebanon. And uh, during the crisis, uh, one thing that bothered me a lot was the brain drain that Lebanon was suffering from. And uh, I wanted to do something about it. And then there was this opportunity. Uh, I make, you know, sometimes you just make uh, a phone call to a friend that you haven't talked to for years. And uh, actually he said, yeah, you're calling at the right time. We need software engineers. We need remote engineers. And this is how I started Supportful as a side hustle. And then uh, within a year, I said, okay, I have to quit my job and go all in because the potential is good. And I'll be doing great mission, which is to reduce the brain drain and 
really offer interesting opportunities to young software engineers and keep them in the country. And this so, is how uh, I found myself uh, founding Supportful. And uh, so far, the journey has been uh, great. And uh, maybe um, one takeaway of this uh, journey is really uh, thinking about what someone likes to do. Maybe I would have spent, you know, all of my life in uh, research. I would have been maybe average, maybe good, but I wouldn't have feel, felt fulfilled. And this is very important for people to feel fulfilled uh, when they work. So we're going to touch on two topics, which were, do you think that formal education is no longer critical as it once before? Yeah, definitely. I mean, formal education, uh, to give you, uh, you know, some information uh, at Supportful, when we advertise a, a job, uh, we don't even require any degree anymore because uh, it's more about what you did, not about what you learned. And uh, so formal education as it is, it's really like they are, most of it is providing knowledge, which is available, whether on Coursera, Udemy, YouTube, anyway. So uh, that's why I don't believe it's relevant anymore. And there's a lot to be done in this area. So uh, obviously preparing people for work, and this is common, uh, you know, there's a, almost an idiom in, uh, in companies that, yeah, this is a fresh grad, so we need to teach him everything. And it shouldn't be this way. I mean, a fresh grad, if uh, he, uh, he was in a, in a courses that was really uh, relevant, I mean, he should come in, get acquainted uh, with the uh, workplace and with the, the way of working, and then uh, be operational after a couple of weeks, which is really not the case uh, nowadays. So definitely, uh, formal education needs to be rethought uh, in a manner that is relevant to today's work. And another point that I want to highlight, you said that you started Supportful as a side hustle. What were the significant challenges you faced in the early days of Supportful? How did you address those challenges? in terms, let's say, in funding or team building or marketing. What advice yeah. would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs based on this experience if they want to start something? So, uh, you know, <clears throat> when I started Supportful, uh, it was 2021. It was the year of power and internet outages in Lebanon. So uh, obviously the challenges that we faced were a bit different from what other startups uh, face in the world. So this was more of a logistics uh, problem. And uh, so eventually we figured out a way that every we're no remote company. So we made sure that everyone had the means to get an alternative uh, power supply and internet uh, uh, connection. But in the more, uh, uh, you know, on the more uh, financial part, uh, we are a services company. So we don't really need a big capital to start. So, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, a service that you start selling from day one and therefore more or less you're profitable uh, from the early days. And this is what's good about uh, selling a service. Now, um, what, what would be my advice to aspiring entrepreneurs? It's really about uh, having a solution to a problem, uh, building a network from early on. So now, even if they're way far from uh, any idea that could turn into a startup. And even if they're employed, even if they're at uh, 
a college, they need to start building their network. Because, I mean, for me, it was just a matter of network. Uh, I remembered a conversation with a friend that we had years ago. And then I said, okay, well, why don't, why I don't call him and uh, just uh, see if things have changed for them and they're interested in software engineering outsourcing. And that this is the power of the network, you know. Um, serendipity happens, but you should act towards it and you should facilitate it. And networking is a big thing. So uh, having a solution to a problem, this is the first thing. Number two, uh, uh, really uh, uh, working towards uh, serendipity and making uh, things happen in the right way. And uh, having uh, resilience. I mean, uh, starting uh, your own company needs uh, resilience. And this is something um, that should be learned over the years. Uh, ideally, away from instant gratification that social media provides. So really uh, putting objectives and working towards them and not settling for, you know, uh, having likes on a post on social media. So I'm going to touch on the part of creating connections with people. So if let's say I want to connect with people, it's not like I add you on LinkedIn and then I try to upsell or sell your service. Is that what you're trying to say? It's more like, you know, you're facing a problem. I might give you a solution kind of thing. Sure. It can be uh, in many ways. One of them is really uh, helping out uh, in a complimentary way. So for free, it could be uh, 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 thanking someone for a contribution or for inspiring. So uh, let's say you're, you read an article and you feel that you're really connected, it resonated with you. Uh, you can just uh, uh, send an email or connect on LinkedIn with the author, just saying that it was a great article and it resonated with me and I specifically liked this part. And uh, here you are, you're building connections. No one would say, oh, what a dumb, uh, uh, message. I mean, if it's genuine, people appreciate it. And this is very important. So, uh, approaching people, uh, with genuine interest, this is very important. So it could be this one. If you're in a, in a community, in a tech community, say, okay, guy, I really, uh, guys, uh, um, who has the contact details of this guy? I really appreciate their work, their contributions, you know, as long as it's, it's genuine, it can be, uh, thanking, it can be, uh, Asking questions, it can be asking for help sometimes, uh, can be really anything. Yeah, I feel this sometimes when some people send me a message on LinkedIn or an email telling me, hey, there's this part in your podcast that I really like that really helped me. And it just makes me feel happy that I'm contributing towards something indirectly. Sure. And uh, I mean, I, I, what is sure is that uh, you need to avoid the salesy speech. Just be genuinely interested, uh, get inspired. And sometimes if you inspire, you can say, okay, I heard you talking about this and I might have a solution for you that I read about, which it, it, it can be something that you're not selling. You know, uh, adding value is uh, very important. And uh, I think this is key to unlocking great uh, connections and uh, relationships. So I'm going to touch base on Supportful's mission, which is 
One of them is to remove the brain drain in Lebanon. But what is the most fundamental mission that drives support, Phil? And how does this mission influence in everything you do, from your decision-making, the service development, and the company's culture? You can share a story if you want about this mission, which impacted you. Yeah, so um, the fundamental mission is really uh, building a better future for this country. And this cannot happen without the young, educated, and skilled people. That's why we need to have them in the country. And that's why by providing uh, opportunities where they can thrive, they can uh, be evolving in great cultures and great environments, um, we would be keeping them in the country. We'd be making sure that uh, uh, money and hard currency is coming into the country, is spent where it needs to be spent, because we are all remote. And when we started uh, during the pandemic, we didn't have any other choice. But now uh, uh, when we can uh, go back to the office, we uh, intentionally decided to stay uh, all remote because we want every one of our engineers to work in their hometown and to spend their money locally so they can help those small local economies develop. And so we can create a really sustainable economy at the national level. So um, this is the core of our mission. And uh, it definitely influences everything in, uh, and everything we do. Uh, let's say we're now focused on Lebanese uh, uh, talented engineers. We could have, you know, uh, started working with people outside of Lebanon. But so far, we, as long as there are, there are so many opportunities and there is a lot of talent on the market. We want to stay in Lebanon. And this is uh, an example of uh, how our mission, uh, you know, influenced our business decisions. So we want to touch base on one thing is that you started from 2021 and till now we do a decent amount of remote work. And in our time right now, it's increasingly shifting towards remote work. What strategies have you implemented at Supportful to build and maintain a strong remote team culture? Because especially in 2021, we are working with people, there was the pandemic. So there was a decent amount of time where we have to work remote because we had to, not because yes. we wanted to at some level. Would you like to touch on this? Yeah. So in terms of uh, culture, what we do is uh, uh, we really make sure that uh, in a remote setting, communication should always be on. It has to be a two-way communication. It has to be a regular. It has to be positive. And it has to be physical sometimes. And we're lucky to be in Lebanon, where uh, it's, a, it's a small country, and we can meet. So we make sure that we meet physically, uh, usually once every quarter. So sometimes for uh, an off-site, we do one off-site, so it's a sort of company retreat. It's an annual uh, thing. Uh, we also do social events around Christmas, Christmas dinner, around the Ramadan with the, our annual iftar. We also do uh, other activities like hiking or uh, just the last week we uh, went together and gave a robotics course to students at a public school in Jbeil. Uh, it was part of Tech Time Out, which was uh, an initiative. Uh, it's, it is an initiative by a UK nonprofit uh, to go off screen for a couple of hours on that day every year. So uh, uh, bonding is very, team bonding is very important. And uh, to do it, it's really two things, communication and uh, social events uh, regularly.
I'm going to move to a different question, which is what criteria did you prioritize when hiring new talent for Supportful? And how do you identify candidates who are not just skilled, but also a good fit for the company's culture? So back with the company's culture, which is if you want to foster a very good culture for the people to stay, but what do you do when you want to hire someone? Yeah, sure. So beyond the technical skills and the communication skills, we focus very much on uh, three uh, you know character traits which are uh, humility honesty and uh, having a growth mindset and we are very much focused uh, on growth at supportful so we have a very ambitious uh, training program so every year it's up to 50 hours of training and upskilling quite personalized to everyone every person's uh, needs uh, in order to make sure that everyone is on a growth path uh, and no one is in their, in their comfort zone. We hate comfort zones. So um, it's important to identify people who like to progress and learn, uh, who uh, are honest about what they've done, what they did, uh, what they want to do, and uh, how they see them, themselves in a company in a few years, and the humility, you know, and it's very much uh, linked to the learning uh, mindset. Uh, people who are, accept feedback and who are uh, willing to learn from every opportunity. So you mentioned about giving a workshop at a school in Jebel, right? Which is something you want to give back to the community. Mm. In what way or different ways has the concept of community influenced the direction and growth at Supportful? Would you like to share an example, let's say the community where you engaged or played a role where it led to, let's say, a business milestone or a certain decision? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a people's person, so I'm very much into communities and uh, I'm trying to influence uh, Supportful in that direction. So we're part of uh, many tech communities, so like the big uh, tech communities uh, worldwide with their local chapters in Lebanon. So whether it's AWS or Google developer groups, um, we're very much into uh, the remote uh, communities. So like running remote international community for remote uh, companies. Uh, on a personal level, I'm part of Life Lebanon, of uh, Bad Assery, which is also a community of uh, uh, leaders in different areas in the world. So uh, I think uh, being a part of a community is very important and uh, it's healthy for uh, individually and for the business, even if it doesn't drive business uh, directly. But uh, I mean, the more you get inspired, the more you learn, the more you know about how people do things, uh, this will eventually uh, reflect on, uh, on your business. Um, I, I'm thinking of a specific instance. Uh, actually, one of our community, one of the communities I'm a member of, there is something called a personal advisory board. And it's, uh, you know, like uh, an accountability, par accountability partner. Uh, to really uh, uh, exchange ideas and uh, force each other to uh, to stick to a specific uh, progress plan. And uh, via one of these sessions, uh, I discovered something that was really missing in our marketing uh, uh, area. And uh, we're now implementing it. We're making sure that uh, we're tackling this problem. And uh, you now this is uh, like free advice. Uh, that I received 
uh, in exchange, I usually try to help whenever I can. And uh, so this is really uh, leveraging the power of the community. And we try to give back uh, as much as we can by giving talks or sponsoring these uh, local events, tech events, like uh, the AWS uh, uh, events or G GTG, along with you know pro bono training sessions to students to make sure that they got they get better guidance and orientation than what we got uh, years ago. So I'm going to move to a different question, which is navigating the competitive tech industry requires innovative strategies for exposure and growth. One of them, the growth that you're trying to do is to foster uh, a good, let's say, tech uh, ecosystem in Lebanon, benefiting the community and all of that. Can you share some key strategies that have been effective in increasing support for visibility and customer base? Additionally, how do you approach the challenges of sales in a tech-focused company? Yeah, so uh, as I was saying, networking is very important to increase uh, exposure. Uh, LinkedIn, I use LinkedIn uh, and uh, our company has a LinkedIn page. Obviously, it's, uh, a, a personal page is uh, much more powerful than a company page, unless you're HubSpot, but uh, uh, because they do great things. Um, so using LinkedIn and actually uh, a big part of our clients came through LinkedIn, you know, because uh, people in your network would see, oh, uh, Fadi is doing this, Supportful is doing that. So they get interested. We start the conversation and uh, usually they're happy to work with us. So uh, LinkedIn is very important. Uh, we did some uh, cold emailing. I wouldn't say it was successful so far. We're trying uh, different uh, ways of doing it, but uh, I think this is an area worth uh, discussing and the working on and uh, obviously the networking aspect of things which is uh, really uh, reaching out to people and saying okay this resonated with me this helped me do this this is these are my two cents for uh, this uh, idea or this topic and building this network and growing it um, as a good way to promote uh, your services and eventually sell them so I want to touch on the part of saying it on the personal account, let's say on LinkedIn, if I created my own personal account rather than mm -hmm. just a company account, people would believe in me because it's mm -hmm. more authentic to come from someone rather than an entity. So for an example, if I created a company and I started to post on that company and the company's page on LinkedIn, people's perception of what I'm doing on LinkedIn through the company's page is different when I do it on my personal because it's more authentic, because it's easier when a human being sells to a human being rather than an entity trying to sell a human being. Correct me if I'm wrong. Here. Yes, exactly. And people do business with you, not with the company. So uh, that's why many salespeople, when they uh, switch to, other, to a competitor, they take the clients with them because... People got used to, I mean, it's always a human relationship and they like to do business with a human. So especially when you're, when you're on LinkedIn, let's say, and you get a bit personal. So they really see the real human in you beyond the business uh, you. And this is very important for creating bonds. And this also applies to Twitter, by the way. So obviously uh, doing business with a person and engaging with a personal profile 
is better for the business than uh, via a LinkedIn page, but you should still do it on your page, on your LinkedIn page. But do you think people are afraid approached by, let's say, a LinkedIn page because they have this idea like if we're connected by a company, then they'll either throw us to some employee who wouldn't understand what we want or any of that. So let's say, for an example, I want to let, let's take myself an example. I want to create, let's say, a software agency and I created a company mm-hmm. page. When, let's say, for an example, I want to tell them to contact me to do, let's say, a quick call to to schedule to do a, to do a, a website they're afraid that i might put them with a sales team who would not understand what their needs are and then when the developer receives let's say a certain message from the sales it would be much more different than what the client wants so they rather stay away from the company and would rather deal with someone they would talk with personally do you think this is let's say like a thing i would say this is uh... You know, very specific to our uh, Levantine culture, where, uh, you know, in Lebanon, everyone wants to do business with the boss. So uh, they don't want to deal with the team. Uh, But I don't think this is a pattern uh, at the international level, at least from my experience. uh, Yeah, if, uh, you know, if uh, you got an automated message from uh, the public figure that represents the company, you would want to engage with them. But if uh, from the beginning they are honest, they say, okay, my, someone from my team would get in touch with you and schedule or schedule a call with someone from my team. I mean, people understand that no one person can, uh, you know, uh, do uh, 20 calls every day with uh, 20 different clients. So especially if they're running the, the show. So I wouldn't say that uh, this is, uh, you know, a showstopper for people. But it's really engaging. Uh, so it could be, you know, the first engagement with the person, with the leader at the company. And then when you are engaged with them, they would refer you to someone else, which I, which usually people don't mind. So I'm going to move to a different question, which is from your extensive experience in pre-sales and project management, how important is it to balance technical knowledge and sales? How does this balance contribute to a successful business development and client relationship? Yeah, I've always said that having a technical background is very important in sales. You know, if you have a, a good sales skills and you have a technical background, you're a rock star because you really understand how systems work. And when a client starts um, uh, telling you about their problem, you if you have, uh, you know, uh, this engineering background, you're trying to really come up with the solution, not right away uh, trying to sell them, uh, sell them something. So um, I think it's very important, especially if you're selling a technical solution, to have a technical background, but obviously you need to have the sales skills. So it's a good combination. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, you can bring value to the client even without selling them today, it, it might create trust uh, for a relationship that will probably fruit, be fruitful in a year or two. But this is uh, also part of the game, long-term relationships. So as long as you know what you're talking about, because you have this technical background, not just the technical know-how from the briefing that you got at the company, I think it's really a real asset. 
or or to actually put put it much more simpler if let's say i understand what the client wants and i'm able to implement it technically the way that it should be so if let's say you told me a certain task the client will not going to get into details he wants i want to achieve x yeah. And if you're capable of doing X on a technical level, but you understand what the client wants from that simple, I want X, it's much more better than just saying, okay, what do you want X to do? What do you... If he just told you, I want X, and you understand what X is supposed to do in complete details, you removed a lot of clutter for the client, and also you achieved what he wanted with minimal collision. Is that what you're trying to imply? And you would And you would speed up the sales cycle. Because when they say... Uh, we want this, or they ask a question, you don't have to go back to your technical team every time because you, some answers you already know that. Or they say, as you were saying, they want to go to step four directly. You would start uh, telling them that there's step one, step two, step three. So uh, it's really helpful, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to move to a different question, which is what strategies and practices have you found most effective in building a strong talent pool that aligns with Supportful's current and future goals? How do you ensure continuous development and engagement of your team to adapt the evolving needs of the tech industry? Or if I want to make it much more simply, what do you want? What is the most effective thing when you want to build a good talent pool? And mm -hmm. If how do you engage with your team to keep on evolving in the tech industry, especially since the tech industry changes rapidly? So yeah. one day you might be using a certain thing, another day you might find out that it's no longer applicable anymore. Yeah, it's uh, funny because uh, it, this question is very relevant in the uh, era of uh, ChatGPT. You know, Stack Overflow was king before ChatGPT. It still is, but obviously it lost some of the, its momentum. And uh, one of the good channels to get the top talent uh, in tech is Stack Over Overflow. So um, what, we, what we, we did to build the, our talent pool was really to go into unconventional places like uh, GitHub, Stack Overflow, Reddit. Uh, this is where we went to see if there are uh, talents that are not traditionally uh, quite active on LinkedIn or even present. You know, uh, software engineers are not your typical uh, uh, population. And therefore, um, what works for other people doesn't work for them, it doesn't necessarily work for them. So uh, uh, these, uh, what I call them, talent hubs are great ways to uh, start your search and building your uh, talent pool. Tech events are a very important thing. This is where people, uh, tech people hang out. This is where they uh, add value. This is where they get value. So you need to be there. You need to approach them. Uh, boot camps are very important and uh, they are a, a good, uh, let's say, uh, uh, platform for uh, top talent, but which is uh, still junior. So you have to have this uh, learning mindset and uh, be able to cater for these entry level or junior people who could prove to be A players in a few years. Referrals are not to be uh, underestimated. So uh, when you approach a software engineer and they're not a fit for this current position, it's always easy to ask them for a referral if they know someone who could be a fit. 
and this uh, really brings uh, on good talent because uh, you know good software engineers uh, hang out together and all of this should be done this is something very important it should be done with genuine interest like in uh, building uh, your network so um, if the position and it happened once actually uh, i approached a software engineer and uh, for a position that was well paid but it wasn't as challenging and interesting at, as what he was currently doing and i was really transparent with him and i told him after i learned what he is currently doing and i said um, it might not be a good move for you even if it meant uh, business for me but uh, you know and he really appreciated that and he eventually referred a good fit for the position so uh, being uh, honest uh, transparent and genuine always pays off because i never think about the bootcamp part where you mentioned about bootcamps where they a bootcamp will teach a certain person who might not come from let's say a software engineering department let's say he might come from a biomedical or he might come from a, a very obscure background and he learns how to do software development the problem with those people is that they might not have the technical mindset that we as computer science students might have so i took let's say some computer theory some algorithm class that i might utilize in my job but those people don't have this extended academic knowledge if you want to say it's a, it's still academic at a certain level how would i want to deal with someone who i know who's not a technical person but he knows how to do this certain thing and would you think that he might be a decent fit on the short term or do you think that he might be a decent fit on a long term well actually i know quite some uh, uh, career shifters who are a players and uh, i like career shifters because uh, when they do it uh, after engaging in a different uh, education uh, uh, track or even in a, in a in a professional career and they switch careers uh, it's uh, it means that they are really passionate about it and uh, no one can beat a passionate software engineer so uh, when they uh, go through the boot camp and they learn uh, whatever stack and if uh, they are they have this learning aptitude and go and uh, learn the the fundamentals on their own i mean uh, uh, they will become a players and um, i know at least three or four career shifters who, who are doing great jobs like a civil engineer who's now a team lead in a tech company in japan or an electrical engineer who reconverted into a software engineering he's doing very well so i don't mind at all it might be hard for some people but uh, if you see the potential and if you believe in them and if you invest in them they might become a players but do you think that some of them are just doing it for the incentive the money incentive behind it since software development is a well paying industry if you want to say like some people would say like okay i studied this major things didn't work out so let me go to a boot camp learn uh get a job that's well paid than just been doing nothing hmm. yeah well, obviously there are people who do it but you can uh, uh identify them in the interview or uh you know by asking the right questions like what additional effort they did beyond what was required in the boot camp 
what did they do since they graduated from the boot camp? If you see a real interest or passion, you can't be wrong. But if you notice that, yeah, probably they did it just for the sake of doing it, like uh, earning any bachelor's degree, you would uh, identify those people. I'm going to shift to a different question, which is how was your experience in different cultures and business environments, let's say in France and Lebanon, shaped your perspective as a founder and leader? Are there any particular lessons or challenges or certain advantages you got when being in a diverse setting? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Uh, you know, having lived for eight years in France, I got into the system and uh, the French system compared to Lebanon is quite uh, rigid, quite institutional, but uh, also very organized. So uh, I think this mix between our entrepreneurial spirit in Lebanon and uh, our risk-taking uh, uh, appetite uh, versus being planning ahead, strategizing, organizing things in France, I think it's it's a good mix. And, uh, you know, nature loves the diversity. And I think when you, uh, when you have a diverse team or you have a diverse uh, uh, personality because you lived in uh, different cultures, uh, it always uh, rewards you. And uh, I think this uh, played in my favor. So you're able to cater the Levant aspect and you can cater the, let's say, European aspect where you can understand the rigidness of the European system, and you can understand the certain, let's say, uh, comfortness of the Levant or certain aspects from the Levant areas or the Arab countries, for example. Yes, it definitely helps you dealing with clients from these cultures. But in my case, I also, I also benefited from it in a, in a sense that uh, you know, it shaped my personality and uh, my way of doing so. I, I hope I took uh, the best of uh, both worlds. Yeah. Speaking of dealing with clients, how does the customer feedback influence your service development process at Supportful? Can you share, let's say, an instance where a customer insight led to a significant pivot to the service? Um, I don't recall an instance where uh, the feedback was substantial, but I do take into account their, the feedback, the client feedback. So for example, uh, in, uh, in one specific instance, it helped us uh, fine tune our vetting process because uh, the client's feedback was really important and, sh and it uh, you know, uh, showed us the stuff that we didn't see in our uh, old process. So, so this is a, a way where it, we were influenced by client feedback, which is uh, very important. And sometimes, uh, based on the client's needs and the, the talent they need, the skills they need, we would also uh, uh, focus on specific profiles with these skill sets. So, yeah, it's a dynamic relationship. And um, we try to, as much as possible, incorporate feedback in our uh, everyday work. So taking this kind of feedback means there's some leadership aspect you have to take towards your team. What is your leadership philosophy and how do you motivate and inspire your team, especially in challenging times? Just for example, dealing with certain things as an example. Can you share, let's say, a certain challenge you faced and how do you address it? 
Um, so I would say my leadership style is uh, democratic, so uh, collaborative, uh, empathetic. So one of the things I like is really leading with empathy. So I always put myself uh, in the shoes of the person I'm talking to and um, try to understand why they did why, what they did uh, from their perspective. And this helps a lot. Uh, so I think it creates a really positive uh, culture and workplace. And uh, in our region, you know, our culture, um, it's hard to find balance between being autocratic and democratic. So, so far, it's been working well uh, at Supportful, finding this balance and making sure that the environment is uh, healthy for everyone and for the business itself. <clears throat> so um, uh, I, I can't uh, recall a specific, uh, you know, a challenge, but, uh, and we're still young, so I think there will be challenges along the way. So I'm going to move to a different question, which is how do you see the tech industry heading in the next five years and what role would you envision for Supportful in this evolving landscape? Well, uh, I think uh, we already, uh, it's, it's already started. Uh, the AI revolution is here to stay and uh, it will, I think it will impact every aspect of technology and even every area of our life. So uh, it's something that's going to be strategic for our support for during uh, next year. And we're going to work on it to make sure that we don't miss the turn. And uh, I think uh, what's, what's interesting in this area is uh, in AI is that uh, for the first time in a research topic, scientific topic, you know, companies uh, are way ahead of academic institutions which is usually the case. So academia uh, starts the research and then private companies implement. But in this area, it's, uh, it's so different. And, um, you know, with the uh, uh, open AI and uh, the, the other competitors, but mostly with open AI, I think we're heading uh, towards uh, great productivity jumps and uh, great advancement in uh, all areas. And I'm happy that we're seeing this and we're doing the necessary to, uh, to uh, make sure that we're not missing the turn. Uh, and this will start as of uh, early next year. But do you think when, let's say, certain artificial intelligence reaches to the general intelligence or AGI, which is known as, it will get rid of certain things or certain tasks that we usually do. But do you think that will negatively affect you in a certain way? I think even before we reach uh, AGI, we're uh, already witnessing some jobs and some, uh, uh, you know, tasks that are becoming really uh, easily uh, done with AI. Uh, yesterday, no later than yesterday, I tried Microsoft Designer. Not sure if you tried it. No, I haven't uh, tried it yet. Yeah, so it was announced by Satya Nadella, and uh, he provided the link. I uh, 
if you have a Microsoft account, you can use it. And I started playing around with it and it's so powerful. And this is, uh, this will be used to create the visuals, uh, social media posts, uh, any kind of design and, um, based on uh, text prompts, you know, it's based on DALI. So, uh, it's the engine that was already there. And, uh, so, you know, uh, designing, uh, uh, visuals, even movies. I also saw, uh, uh, a try, uh, a tool in action that creates movies, uh, based on text prompts. And, uh, so things are going to really, really go fast from here. And, uh, it's, I don't think it's a problem if these uh, jobs or tasks are automated because people uh, will be doing uh, things that have more value. Now, when you have AGI, things will be different. And there's a big debate uh, about uh, how close are we to AGI with, uh, you know, Meta's uh, chief AI scientist, Jan Lequin, uh, saying that we are not even close while the open AI guys are working uh, hard towards delivering AGI very soon in the coming years. Um, this is where I get a bit worried from the lack of regulation around this. And, uh, you don't want to have a technology that is way more powerful than humans. And that is not controlled by a body that is either democratically elected or that has, uh, participation from different, uh, players. So it's a philosophical question, but yeah, obviously AGI needs to be approached in a careful and uh, non-commercial manner. But here's the thing, when, when you say we want to do regulations, the first person who approaches the first gets to put the regulations on defining what's right and what's wrong. The problem is that once you reach to the definition of defining the rules, then you get to dictate how things work. So you push things towards your favor. So it's more of a, it's more like an arms race on who gets to be first mm. to take control on how things move forward. Because even now, if things aren't regulated and when you want to set the regulations, you need a base to regulate upon, regardless of the case. Yeah, that's why uh, for me, the regulatory body should be um, a democratically elected or uh, it should represent many nations, many industries, many schools of thought. And one important thing, thing is really uh, open sourcing everything. And, uh, you know, there's this, uh, this direction of open sourcing AI, uh, starting from the training data. And, uh, I think this is a step in the right direction because, uh, if everyone knows, uh, like the, I mean, uh, the concept of a blockchain, if you can track everything and if you can see who is doing what with what data and you know the, the, what the data is about, I think it can, it's much better than having, uh, you know, closed, uh, sets of data that the engine is training on. But here's the thing, when you open source everything, there's no longer incentives of dealing with a company that gathers its own data specifically. Uh, mm, well, you can uh, see that, uh, you know, so there are so many profitable Linux uh, companies, you know, there's always a way to make money out of open source. So uh, let's say uh, 
uh, Red Hat, they have their own uh, distro and they make money out of it. And people will find a way to make money out of uh, open sourced uh, LLMs. So I'm going to move to a different question, which is based on your journey, what advice would you give to software developers or technical professionals aspiring to become, let's say, a founder? Are there any specific skills or experience they should focus on? My number one uh, advice is really uh, uh, networking from now because the idea, or to be more accurate, the solution to a problem will uh, maybe it will uh, uh, it will come uh, in a few years. In the meantime, what they can do as of now is really building their network. And from the readings they will get exposed to, from the conferences they will attend, from the podcasts they will listen to, from the advice they will get, it might open up uh, so many uh, uh, new opportunities for them. So number one, networking. Number two, uh, work on being resilient. Because as a founder, you will get a lot of rejection, especially if you're... Uh, uh, searching for funding and obviously because when you're a founder you're doing sales at the beginning so uh, they have to be resilient and mental resilience is uh, something that uh, is uh, built gradually and uh, it starts with I mean uh, they don't have to take uh, cold showers but they need to commit they need to organize their lives and they need to whenever there's a problem they need to tackle it and not uh, shy away from it. So it's more like playing a long-term game, if you want to think about it. It's not like I just want to take the title and that's it. Yes, sure. I mean, uh, there's no reward in being a founder if uh, what you're doing is not uh, uh, rewarding in itself, if you don't uh, add value. So, so uh, assuming the fact if I became, let's say, a founder, and you want to give advice on someone on how to do a work-life balance if you became, let's say, a CEO. What advice would you have, let's say, for someone who became, let's say, a founder for entrepreneurs or business leaders in maintaining a personal well-being while driving a successful business? Okay. Usually, I use the term life-work uh, balance because life is more important than work. And so uh, I put it first. And... Um, what I think should be done is really organizing uh, life and really using that balance term. So it's good to grind. It's good to work long hours, but the, everything needs to be balanced out. So let's say you have a product release in, a, in two weeks and you have a, a very tough two weeks. This is normal. But once you're done, you should rest, you should take a break, and you should go back to the normal. So the normal for some people could be 10 hours of work a day. If they don't mind, no problem. But the other uh, 14 hours uh, left, they should be well spent. So it could be uh, getting at least seven to eight hours of sleep. It could be exercising. It could be doing something playful. It could be if, you, if they're married, uh, and it should be, um, attending to the needs of their families. And, uh, you know, the, the one saying I, I like is that uh, when you work a lot and you do overtime, 
the only one who will notice this in 10 years down the road are your children. No one yeah, will remember I saw, this. I saw a tweet that says um, the one of the main purposes, uh, that's one of a big investor. Uh, he wrote that one of the greatest moves that he has was being a parent because you know what things to prioritize and to focus on. And it is yes, when, so. you have a, when you have a kid and you realize that every decision you do reflects on them, you start to take certain steps because you don't want to hurt them than hurting yourself. Like you could take long hours, you can not sleep for certain days, you could do whatever you want. But let's say missing that football match or not attending, let's say, career day or, or family day at school will affect the kid much more than just saying, I want to maximize one, two hours. Sure, sure. Definitely agree. And uh, I mean, I'm assuming uh, typical startup founders are uh, single, young. I mean, I, I, I was uh, late uh, about uh, my startup uh, at 38, but um, typically when you're single and you're, uh, re- you're young, it's better to spend uh, long hours working than uh, doing uh, the wrong things. It is a thing. You're not, uh, you didn't enter old. It's just that you entered at the right time that you thought that's the right time to do it. So there's no right age for it. So if you're entering when you're a young age, it doesn't matter if you're entering also on an older age. Definitely. It's just that, I mean, I don't fit in the, uh, on the curve. I'm in the, you know, uh, 10% or uh, 20%. But typically, yeah, I mean, the curve is obviously uh, in favor of young people, but doesn't mean that uh, what uh, people build at a later age uh, is not successful. And uh, I mean, the biggest example is the founder of KFC, who founded KFC at the age of 63. So uh, there's no age for being an entrepreneur. So I always end the podcast with a mental health question, something that I always do. Have you ever faced burnout or imposter syndrome? And if you did, then what do you do to resolve towards these issues? Well, um... I wouldn't say I faced burnout or imposter syndrome, maybe some slight imposter syndrome, uh, not in my current role, but uh, previously in, uh, in one of my previous jobs. Because as I told you, I hate comfort zones. So every time I was uh, um, switching jobs, it was to a new position. It was never for the same position. Uh, and uh, yeah, so you sometimes uh, face this feeling where you think that, yeah, I might not be fit for the job, but whenever uh, I face these uh, thoughts, I just, just uh, I don't write down the problems, but uh, it's like I'm writing them down in my, uh, in my head. And uh, I just start tackling them one by one. So what am I uh, worried about? That meeting and uh, this topic that I'm not very familiar with? Okay, my plan is to uh, study Uh, this uh, thing, uh, learn more about it and be ready for the meeting. Uh, What am I uh, worried about uh, uh, facing my manager because the results were not up to the expectations? Okay, so why uh, the results were not up to the expectations? Uh, I should assume responsibility for my failures. I should make sure that there are learnings and show my manager that uh, I learned uh, the lesson and here's my uh, uh, approach for the next quarter where I will meet uh, my uh, KPIs. So it's really about tackling the problem and uh, going head on and uh, facing it and making sure it's not, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, on the back burner, teasing you uh, from time to time. I usually write them in a journal. So now I'm on journal 14. I write all my issues down. It's just easier for me to have a stack of proof on what I did and and to just not say I wasn't able to do it. I face sometimes some burnout and imposter syndrome. I face burnout quite more than imposter syndrome. Uh, Imposter syndrome, after learning how to journal, I just have a stack of proof to prove who I am or to prove what I'm doing. So I would come up and say like, okay, I cannot do this, but... Here's, this, here's like a notebook containing all the things that I did about this topic. So I'm capable of doing it. Why I can't do it? Yeah, that's great. So I can, I, can trick, I can trick myself to thinking, okay, I do have imposter syndrome. I do believe like I, I might not be able to do this, but I do have a proof that I'm able of doing this. And when I trace back onto what I wrote in my journals about burnout, I learned from my lesson to not redo the same problem again. So mm-hmm. writing things down actually is good. Because you can tackle the pro- half of the problem actually gets solved from writing it down. Exactly, and this is uh, this is great advice, Hamad. And uh, do you do you cross them to make sure they're gone, or you check them, or? No, I sometimes I cross things down. I put even even reviews. Uh, I do even some yearly reviews on what I did and all of that. I organize them into points so I can easily access them, so so that yeah. they become much more easier for me. Speaking about reviews, I do a monthly review about all the aspects of my life. So personal, uh, professional, family, relationships, and spirituality. This is a monthly review. And then every year, you know, the, it's, a, it's a trendy thing. It's a trendy thing to, to talk about uh, your New Year's uh, resolutions. But I do them and I track them. And uh, it's been a few years and it's really simple, you know, it doesn't have to be a rocket science, just what you want to do in each area of your life. And uh, I think uh, what you're doing is great and monitoring and reviewing uh, is uh, compliments, uh, writing them down. I stopped doing uh, New Year's resolutions, to be honest. Why? Um, You trick yourself into putting a benchmark that you need to achieve. The but thing if you... is, if I'm going to mm. give you a, a good example, I used to read for three years, 52 books a year. I never wow. stopped. That's almost a book a week. This year, I, wrote, I, wrote tw- I read 26, which is half. And the reason why I always say every single year, I need to read 52 books, which is part of the New Year's resolution. You say to yourself, I'm going to head to the gym. I'm going to do this and all of that. The point when you read 52 books is that you want to claim to other people that you are an intellectual. You come to hear, I read 52 books. The long-term game is to actually be an intellectual who reads books, who enjoys reading, not I want to be a 52-book-per-year reader. So the New Year's resolution of I want to go to the gym, actually it's about playing the long-term game, I want to be a very fit person. So I don't come up and write, I want to go to the gym and that's it. This is my New Year's resolution. Because I can go to the gym for one month, cross it out, and say, okay, I did mm-hmm. it, and I don't have to go Definitely. to the gym. I, in the New Year's resolution, just play on a very short-term game or a limited game or sense a benchmark. If you haven't achieved it, then you're a failure. That, that's the problem. Yeah. Otherwise, when you want to play a long-term game, so let's say I want to be an intellectual. I know it's not going to take me one year. It might take me several years to do it, but I'm willing to take the first step towards playing the long-term game. 
So I would sit down and read. If I achieve 10 books, I don't have any issues. If I achieve 20, that's good. If I achieved 30, that's great. But if let's say next year, I got, let's say, some issues or certain things that made me unable to do 30 and I read 20, I'm still someone who's reading. I didn't do 30, but I'm still the intellectual that I am. I'm still playing the game. I didn't stop. That's the thing. But when I put New Year's I resolution totally and agree. I say, when I say a New Year's resolution, when I say I'm going to read 30, and then let's say you read 25, you come up and you say, I'm five books short, I'm not good. You reach a position that you start using them as ammunition against you rather than mm. being something that's good for you. Okay, so uh, yeah, I hear uh, where you're coming from and it's definitely uh, true. Uh, the thing is that uh, my New Year's resolutions are resolutions that last for a lifetime. So it's mostly about bad habits that I want to stop or good habits that I want to acquire. So uh, they're really not quantitative or if they're quantitative, they are uh, realistic. You know, like 52 books a year, first off, congrats. I mean, that's a great achievement. And uh, I mean, Bill Gates uh, reads 52 books a week. So uh, you're in the league of uh, really prolific uh, readers 26 is also great and 12 is really outstanding i mean uh, a book a month with the limited time you have every day it's already great so uh, i mean if you want to if you if you um, put really realistic objectives i mean uh, making sure that you're reading every year at least let's say 12 books and it's a, it means that you're an intellectual without having to brag about uh, uh, doing uh, reading 20 or 50 books. But that's, uh, um, I mean, your perspective is very relevant about uh, being short term. Yeah, it shouldn't be I want to go to the gym or it should be I want to go to the gym for the rest of my life. That's why I won't commit to five times a week. I will commit to twice a week, which is realistic. It's more playing yeah. the long term game. It's just that, that totally agree it should be yeah, about the long term the more you you put more frequency the more you get to reach the burnout so that that's how sometimes i face i learned this lesson in a very yeah, tough the way. Hard way the hard yeah. way thank you so much for listening to the episode if you liked it then feel free to watch our previous episodes and feel free to follow us on social media and rate us on your favorite podcast app of choice